If you do not possess humility toward God, you can never be taught. If you do not possess humility, you'll never come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you never possess humility and recognize the fact that there is nothing that I can do to save myself, I am not saved by works, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, lest any man should boast. I am not saved by my works of righteousness, which I have done, Titus 3, 5, because my righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. And until you recognize that fact, you will never cry out to the one who alone can save you. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. Philippians chapter number 2, and we're going to be reading verses 17 and 18. Philippians chapter 2 this morning, uh, beginning in verse number 17. This is the word of God. Paul says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause, for the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness to us, and we pray, Father God, that you would teach us your truth today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. As we have been studying together the last couple of weeks on the process of sanctification, we have noticed three areas so far of sanctification. We noted the ethic of sanctification. We noted the evidence of sanctification. And now we have been taking our time, as we usually do, looking at the examples of sanctification. And Paul gives us three examples in this text, and he goes through the end of chapter number two. And as Paul begins to give the examples of sanctification, he begins with himself And what we learn about the Apostle Paul as he speaks about himself as the example, we see Paul's humility. And I want to remind you this morning, church, that it is not an act of pride that Paul used himself as an illustration. Because we understand from Scripture that Paul very clearly understood his own sinfulness. In Romans chapter 7, for example, you all are very familiar with this passage, beginning in verse 15, The Apostle Paul says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. What's Paul saying? In essence, Paul is saying, Every time I turn around, I'm doing what I want, church. What I don't want to do, and I'm doing, I'm not doing what I want to do, and I'm doing what I don't want to do. He says, If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. So Now then it is no more I that do it, but what? Sin that dwelleth in me. You see, when you become a child of God, you still possess a sinful nature. Yes, you have the nature and the righteousness of Christ by faith. 
but you still possess the ability to sin because the old man, the old man is still there. For I know, Paul says, that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but what church? Sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. And so we see by that church, we see see Paul's dilemma. And Paul's dilemma is, listen, I'm constantly doing what I don't want to do, and I'm not doing what I want to do. But we also see Paul's delight. And folks, listen, that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Because Paul's delight in verse 22 says, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Because listen, church, so many times in our Christian life, we allow the sins that we struggle with, and we, and we do struggle with sins, don't we? We allow the sins that we struggle with to sometimes entrap us and make us feel less for Christ than we ought to be. But folks, listen, we need to understand and rejoice this morning in Jesus Christ that he has won the victory over sin by his death on the cross. He has given us a new nature. And even though we on the outside have a struggle with sin, our delight is the same delight as Paul. And what was Paul's delight? I desire to obey God. Do you struggle with sin this morning? Do you struggle with sin sin patterns in your life? Maybe you struggle with bad thoughts. Maybe you struggle with anger. Maybe you struggle with bad words. Maybe you struggle with people you associate with. Maybe you have maybe you struggle with what you watch on the internet or what you watch on the TV or struggle with books that you read. That may be your struggle in life, but the question that you need to ask yourself is this: What is my delight? Do I, am I like Paul, and do I delight in the law of God? Meaning, do I long to obey the law of God? Listen, I may struggle with sin this morning, and you may struggle with sin this morning, but is your heart's desire to obey God? Paul says, listen, I struggle. I struggle. But what is, but my desire is to obey God. And that was Paul's delight. But then we see Paul's distraction in verse 23. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. You know, the devil never leaves you alone, does he? Warring against the law of my mind. And what does it do? Paul says, it brings me into what? Captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And then we see Paul's despair in verse 24, where he he laments, O wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul says, I feel like I'm carrying around a dead man. And you know what, Paul? It's because you are. The the, the old man is dead, isn't he, church? When you become a child of God, the old man is dead. The The old nature is dead. But unfortunately, the rottenness of its corpse affects us, doesn't it? And Paul says, I feel like I'm carrying around a dead man. And then we, and so Paul understood, church, his own sinfulness. And you, we sometimes ask ourselves the questions, well, if Paul was so sinful and Paul understood his sinfulness, then why did he elevate himself as the example? Why does he say, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, be ye followers of me as I am of Christ? And here's the reason, church, because even though he was sinful, 
His conscience was clear of any known unconfessed sins. You know, I can't tell you, church, the amount of people that have sat down with me in a room and, and with tears streaming down their face with a struggle with sin. Paul had the same struggle, church. But Paul's conscience was clear. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with a pure, what? Conscience. And the point is this, church, listen to me very clearly, is that you can be sinful and you can lament over your sin and still be an example. Because Paul was. Paul was sinful, but yet he was still an example. But church, listen to me this morning. If you find it difficult to set yourself up as an example for others to follow, it is because you recognize the fact that there is something wrong with the model. If you find it difficult to say to somebody, if you find it difficult to say to your children, if you find it difficult to say to your coworkers, your neighbors, the rest of your family, if you find it difficult to say, you follow me as I follow Christ, it's because you recognize that there is something in your life that must be changed that hasn't been changed yet. And listen, church, what needs to be surrendered will always need to be surrendered until it's surrendered. God never forgets what you need to surrender to him. God never lets that go. And even though you may be having an emotionally good day, unless you are living in total surrender to Christ, you have given him your all, then you will constantly struggle in your life. But church, instead of being satisfied with not being an example, do not allow sin to hinder and bind you where you believe that you cannot be an example. And of course, this morning, I'm speaking primarily to Christians. But also, don't allow sin to remain in your life to where it defiles your conscience. And so Paul set himself up as an example. He gives three examples in this text from verses 17 all the way to the end of the chapter. Paul was a man of great humility. And we saw that last week in the tremendous imagery that he shows you. And you've got that on the back of your bulletin as point number one, the imagery. But now we want to go to point number two. And that is not only the imagery, but point number two, the illustration. The illustration. The imagery that Paul gave us in the first part of verse 17 sort of sets up for us the continued thought regarding Paul seeing himself as the drink offering. Look at verse 17. Yea, and if I be offered, what does he say? upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Stop right there. And here we go from the imagery of from imagery to illustration of the humility of Paul. Now, I want you to remember the fact, what was the drink offering? Remember the drink offering was? We saw this last week. The drink offering, when the high priest would give the sacrifice on the brazen altar and the sacrifice was all burnt up, the, the offerer would then come up and he would pour either wine or, according to Hosea 9, he would pour wine on the altar, on the sacrifice, and it would immediately vaporize and the steam would rise up to heaven, in essence, as a picture of praise and sacrifice arising to God. And that's how Paul saw himself. But notice the fact that Paul saw himself as the drink offering on what? On verse, verse 17. On your sacrifice and your service. And what is Paul saying? Paul spoke about their sacrifice being greater than his own. And here Paul reflects on the sincere humility that marks every noble believer. 
that he was supremely, and this humility was supremely exemplified in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul saw their sacrifice, the sacrifice of the church at Philippi, as greater than his own. Paul says, I'm just the drink offering. You are the greater sacrifice. What a humble, what a humble illustration. I am being poured out, Paul says, literally. I am being poured out as a drink offering on top of your real sacrifice and your real service. You're making the greater sacrifice. I'm just the topping. Why does he say that? Because the Philippian believers were suffering greatly. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, the Apostle Paul tells them, And in nothing being terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you... It is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So they had, they had opponents, and they were suffering for Christ. He says in verse 30, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. Paul says, you're going through the same thing I'm going through. They were living in a hostile, pagan environment, and the environment was bringing persecution on these Christians. And so Paul says... Where is Paul when he writes this letter? He's, he's sitting in prison. And while sitting in prison, he says to this church, you're the ones that are really suffering. You're the ones that are really suffering. You're the ones proclaiming Christ in a hostile environment. I'm just the pouring out. I'm just the topping. I'm just the final touch. And here, church, we see the humility and the sacrifice of Paul. Your service to God is the real sacrifice. You're the ones that are really suffering. And I, by my imprisonment, I'm just a topper. He says, and what does he say in verse 17? I joy. He says, I'm good with that. What does that tell us about Paul's character? And the character of all those that are spiritual examples and leaders. If you remember back at the beginning of chapter 2, what is the whole theme of the first six verses of chapter 2? Humility. Where Paul says, sorry, for example, in verse 3, he says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You know, that's a real problem in evangelicalism today, isn't it? That's a real problem in the church today. We live in evangelicalism and we live in a world where everybody's concerned about their own things and they're not concerned about the things of others. And the reason that he sees theirs as the major sacrifice and his as the minor sacrifice is because of humility in his heart. Listen, folks, Paul is not a proud man. Paul is a humble man. And you and I will never be the leaders for Christ that we need to be unless we, first of all, have some humility. Because if you do not possess humility, then you cannot ever be taught, church. If you do not possess humility toward God, you can never be taught. If you do not possess humility, you'll never come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you never possess humility and recognize the fact that there is nothing that I can do to save myself, I am not saved by works, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, lest any man should boast. I am not saved by my works of righteousness, which I have done, Titus 3, 5, because my righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. And until you recognize that fact, you will never cry out to the one who alone can save you. 
Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone, through Christ alone, through the scriptures alone. That is the ringing tone of the Reformation. Alone, alone, alone. Church, it is by Christ alone that we're saved. It is by Christ alone that we serve. It is by Christ alone that we're sanctified. It is by Christ alone we're justified. It is by Christ alone that one day we will be glorified. Christ, Christ, Christ alone. It is him alone. And until we have the humility in our hearts to recognize that, we'll never even be a Christian, much less be for God what we ought to be. Paul was a humble man. Paul was not a proud man. And he thought more of the sacrifice of the Philippian believers than he did of his own. You know, you can look at the life of the Apostle Paul, and you ne- one thing you never hear the Apostle Paul do is complain. You never hear Paul say, well, why am I in prison? Why am I in these chains? I love Acts 16, don't you? Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas uh, had just, just cast out a, a demon out of a girl, and because they cast a demon out of the girl, it took away her, her boss's ability to, to sell fortune. And so what did they do to him? Well, they, they do what all good citizens of a city do. They threw him in prison. All right? They threw him in prison. And what does the Bible say that Paul and Silas were doing? Paul and Silas were sitting there in that jail cell, and they were, they were shackled to, uh, to, to the wall. And, and history tells us that they weren't just chained. They were chained as far as their arms and their legs could stretch. That's how they were chained. Very uncomfortable position. And what does the Bible say Paul and Silas were doing there in Acts chapter 16? And in midnight, they were singing and praising God. And I don't know what they were saying, but the Bible says they were singing and praising and God. And then God brought a what? God brought a great earthquake. And the earthquake was so bad that all the prison doors flew open. The jailer came in, asked for a light, and he was about to fall on his sword because Roman law says that if you lose a prisoner, guess what happens to you? You're dead. You die in their place. And so that dude grabbed a sword and he was about to fall on it because, hey, he saw all the doors open. I don't know about you, but I'd have run. They saw all the doors open and he figured everybody was gone. And right as he's about to fall on that sword, what happens? Paul cries out, do yourself no harm. We are all here. And then the Bible says he gets a light and he comes into Paul and Silas' jail cell trembling. Trembling. And he looks at Paul and Silas and he says, what must I do to be saved? And I believe with all my heart, folks, that it was the testimony of Paul and Silas not complaining that God used to draw that Philippian jailer to himself in faith. You never hear Paul complaining. You never hear Paul saying, why am I in change? In fact, when you get to the end of the book of Romans, actually the end of the book of Philippians, there's a wonderful phraseology there at the end of the book of Philippians where Paul says in verse 22 of Philippians 4, all the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. I love that. Who are of Caesar's household? Those dudes that were chained to Paul. Because as those Roman soldiers were chained to Paul, Paul was giving them the gospel. They were getting saved, and they were going back to Caesar's household spreading the gospel. Folks, listen, we better watch the gongusmas. That's why Paul started where he did in verse 14. We better watch the gongusmas, the the low-toned rumbles of complaining, because our attitude and our actions speak volumes of people coming to faith in Christ. 
And not only do you not hear Paul complaining, but folks, listen, you never hear Paul reminding God how faithful he is. Oh, God, why are you doing this to me? I'm so faithful. As if faithful people don't have hard times. Then may I say to you this morning that your faithfulness to God has nothing to do with whether you suffer physical, spiritual, or financial hardships. Nothing to do with it whatsoever. Your faithfulness to God has nothing to do with whether in fact you'll get physical healing because faithful people die and go to be with the Lord. And that has nothing to do with that. Jesus said in John chapter 16 and verse 33, These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Listen, church, we do not make deals with God. We do not make deals with God and attempt to use our faithfulness as a reason for God to keep us healthy or anything else. Good people go through bad times, don't they? Good people go through hardships. Good people suffer. Good faithful people die. God, I don't want to live forever on this planet. So if, uh, so if faithful people live forever on earth, I don't want to live forever on earth. And we don't make deals with God, folks. Listen, and just because you're going through a hard time this morning doesn't mean you're out of fellowship with God. Remember John chapter 9 when the boy was born blind and the disciples went to Jesus and he said, Master, who sinned, this boy or his parents, that he was born blind? Because in those days, and I asked the, uh, the missionary we had a couple weeks ago in the, and the rabbinical system till, still teaches this, the Pharisees back in the time of Christ taught what we call prenatal sin. They believed that a, that a baby in the womb of his mother could commit a sin that would cause that baby to be born with some type of physical deformity or affliction. And so the disciples who had been raised under that teaching went to Jesus and said, Master, who sinned, this boy or his mother, that he was born blind? And what was Jesus' answer? Nobody sinned. But for the what, church? Glory of God. Church, listen, if you've got a sin in your life, you may be struggling this morning because there's something in your life that may be need to be abandoned to the Lord. That may be the case, but that's not necessarily the case because, listen, God's more concerned with your character than he is your comfort, and he will do whatever and whenever he needs to do in your life to make him more like Jesus Christ, to make you more like Jesus Christ. Listen, our faithfulness doesn't promise good times. In fact, I'll say your faithfulness to God may increase the bad times. But what does Jesus say? I have overcome the world. Amen? I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer. And so Paul doesn't remind God of how faithful he is. Paul just says to the church, your sacrifice is greater than mine. How about you? Church, this morning, how is your humility and your service to God, to Jesus Christ this morning? Are you quick to remind God of all the good things you do for him? Have you ever prayed that way? Have you ever heard somebody pray that way? He's going through an affliction, and they start running off a list of God of all the good things they've done. What does that do? Just lets God reveal to you how proud you are. How proud you are. Are you that way? Or are you the, or are you the sacrificial rejoicer? The one who sees the sacrifice of others as greater than yours. The one who sees the trials of others as greater than yours. Are you willing this morning to be like Paul and just 
Throw yourself out on the altar for someone else? Are you willing, like Paul, to be poured out on the altar and be totally consumed, folks, to be totally burned up to where there's nothing left but Christ? I don't know about you, but this morning in my heart and in my spirit, I want to be laid out on that altar and I want to be totally burned up to where I am totally gone and there's nothing left but Christ. But unfortunately, my flesh gets in the way and I don't always live like that. But I want to live like that. Are you like Paul this morning? One who doesn't spend so much time complaining about their troubles, but rejoices that you've been counted worthy to suffer for his name. Because listen, church, spiritual leadership, and everybody in this auditorium tonight, uh, today, of one sort or another, is a spiritual leader whether you want to be or not. Spiritual leaders spend their time focusing on others and not on themselves, which is what made Paul uh, an, an illustration of a sacrificial rejoicer. And he does so with humility. We need a humble church today. We need a humble evangelicalism. We need a humble Christians. Because again, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 4, this is what we need. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Because true spiritual leadership are gladly spent and used for the sake of others. Paul says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with what? Joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, I testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And in Acts chapter 21 and verse 13, then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready to not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of Jesus Christ. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 15, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also what? Our own souls, because you were dear to us. Folks, let me ask you a question. Do you have that attitude this morning of the person sitting next to you in the pew? Do you have that attitude of the person sitting in front of you, sitting behind you? that I will gladly be spent, I will gladly be used if it made things for you better. I will gladly take of my time and my talents if it means to make you better. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verse 3? He said, I would wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren. In other words, Paul says, I would give up my salvation and I would be eternally cursed if it meant my Jewish brethren could be saved. Do you have that type of humility? Do you have that type of a humble heart that wants to serve people? Notice what Paul says again in verse 17, upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. They were a faithful people. They were a sacrificial people. And he rejoiced over them. He rejoiced over them because of their faithfulness to the Lord. He says in chapter 4 and verse 18, But I have all and abound and am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell of sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. 
Paul recognized that the church of Philippi sent him money when they didn't have it. They sacrificed. And he saw their life as the major sacrifice. And it was demonstrated in their monetary gifts to him. Listen, if Paul was not a sacrificial person, the people of Philippi would not have been a sacrificial people because the leader gives the example for those he leads. And if the leader isn't willing to sacrifice, then the people that he leads aren't going to be willing to sacrifice. Paul just saw himself as the topping. But I want you to see also that there's a sense, not only from the lesser to the greater here, but there's also a sense of unity. It was really one sacrifice, wasn't it? Paul's topping, his, his drink offering wasn't, wasn't different. It was the same sacrifice. And Paul says, I don't mind a bit being poured out on the sacrifice. You know what? I don't mind a bit. There's not a person in this auditorium this morning. I don't mind a bit getting down in the trenches with you. And I mean that. There's not a person in this auditorium tonight that I wouldn't today that I wouldn't mind getting down into the trenches and fighting the devil with you. Because that's what leaders do. They, they fight with and for their people. They become sheepdogs. And they fight for the people. And that's what Paul says he was willing to do. He says, I glory in the fact that I'm able to be sacrificed with you. But notice the attitude that goes along with it in verse 17 again. I joy. I'm happy with that. I'm satisfied with that. I'm good with that. Listen. It was not joy in spite of being poured out. It was joy because he was being poured out. It was not joy in spite of the sacrifice. Paul says, you know what? I'm going through a rough time, but you know what? I'm going to be happy anyway. That wasn't Paul's attitude. Paul's attitude was, listen, I'm being poured out, and I am joyous that I'm being sacrificed. Have you ever looked back and wondered? I don't know if you've ever sat, if you've ever been here, we've had some of our missionaries. We've had some missionaries going to some pretty weird places in this church. And uh, have you ever sat back and wondered, how can those missionaries live under those conditions? We had a couple coming here many, many years ago. They were going to the jungles of Africa. And, you've ever, and if you've ever heard somebody say about the deepest part of the jungles of Africa, that's where these folks were going. The, the, this husband and wife team was about 25, 26 years old, and she was seven months pregnant. She's going to the jungles of Africa. And sometimes we sit back and wonder, how in the world can they go under those conditions? How can they endure that year after year after year? How many of you all like the heat? You love the heat. Okay, you love the, uh, Rebecca, you love the 100% humidity. Okay, uh, Rebecca gets on her bike and she drives 180 miles on her bike, almost, 100 miles. And she gets, and she loves, and what is taller, she loves humidity. Not really. Nobody loves humidity. So why do people go to Papua New Guinea? Why do people go to Africa? Why do people do that? Because they view that sacrifice as well-pleasing to God. And folks, listen, here's the principle. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. Okay? The greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. The more supreme the offering, the greater the exhilaration. And, the, and that church is the bottom line. It's not joy in spite of, it's joy because of. I don't joy in Christ if I'm a missionary to Africa. I don't, enjoy, I don't joy in Christ in spite of being a missionary to Africa, of sacrificing my family and my comfort to be a missionary to, for Jesus Christ. I joy because I am. 
Folks, listen, where you are in your life, that should be our attitude this morning. I don't joy in spite of the situations God has put me through. I joy because of them. He said, Pastor, you're speaking gibberish. That's crazy. Well, that's what the Bible talks about. Let me tell you what, that does sound crazy to the world, doesn't it? It's because it's antithetical to everything that the world teaches. But the greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. And for so many believers, our joy, we don't understand that because we find it difficult to relate. And one of the things that we can affirm about Paul is that he had the greatest joy during the greatest sacrifice. And the reason why, Christians, we find it so difficult to relate to that is because we never, we never know about that level of joy because we never know about that level of sacrifice. We're not willing sometimes to give up our own comforts to sacrifice for others or to sacrifice, more importantly, for Christ. And we never know about that kind of joy because we never know about that kind of sacrifice. We never understand, church, the joy of sacrifice, the joy of giving, the joy of helping, the joy of offering, because so many believers live our life being, being surrounded by finding joy in what makes us happy. We need to stop being, church, so self-consumed and be consumed in Christ. Being consumed in not what makes us happy, but being consumed in giving ourselves an, an offering to Christ. And if that means I share in your suffering, what we need to have the same attitude that Paul had in verse 17. I'm okay with that. I joy. I joy. If, if my sacrifice means I, I, I struggle with you, then I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I'm willing to give up that sacrifice. The joy of offering was why Paul lived. And that's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 24, 21, for me to live is what? Christ. Is that you this morning? There's only two ways. There's only one way to live, church. As a Christian, there's only one way to live, and that's to live for Christ. And if we're living in any other way, we're never going to live in joy. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Is that your testimony this morning? Can you say, yes, pastor? Can you say before God this morning, yes, preacher? I, as, as long as I live, I'm going to live for Christ. And the moment I close my eyes in death, the next face I'll see is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. James, pastor James loves Fanny Crosby. Somebody, when Fanny Crosby was alive, somebody came to see Fanny Crosby. A preacher came to visit her one day and they were sitting out talking, and this preacher inadvertently mentioned her blindness. Fanny Crosby was blind. If you know anything about her life, she was blinded from a disease that were very early in her, in her life, and, have, and have, but has written some of the greatest songs the church has ever sung. And this preacher inadvertently uh, mentioned her blindness and immediately began to apologize over himself. And she stopped him, and she said, Preacher, don't you dare apologize to me. She says, I'm not sorry I'm blind. She says, because I know that when I die, the very first face I will, these eyes will see is the Lord of glory himself. Is that your testimony this morning? Are you willing to sacrifice whatever Christ asks of you, knowing the greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy? Paul says, my life means nothing to me. Don't worry about me. I'm good. I've, in fact, Paul says, I've never been happier. 
And Paul's sitting in jail, chained 24 hours to a Roman soldier. And he says, I've never been happier. And if you think that's odd, it's because you've never had that type of sacrifice. Paul says, I'm happy. Don't worry about me. I'm joyous. I'm good. And I'm glad that I'm a sacrifice with you. Folks, are you willing to pour yourself out like that for people? Number three. Not only do we see the imagery and the illustration, but number three, the indication. In the following verses, Paul gives us an indication of the heart of a true servant of Christ. Look what he says. And rejoice with you all, for the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Basically what Paul is saying here is that we rejoice the same way. We rejoice the same way. It's a mutual sacrifice on both parts of Paul and the believers of Philippi. They were, they were all going through persecution. They were all going through opposition. You rejoice and I rejoice. Folks, let me ask you a question this morning. Does rejoicing mean that you, that you don't shed some tears? Does rejoicing mean that you always walk around with a goofy smile on your face? You do that all the time. People wonder what you're up to. Rejoicing doesn't mean you always walk around with a goofy smile on your face. Because rejoicing starts where, church? It starts at the heart. That's where it begins. That's where it has to flow from. It has to flow from the heart. It has to flow from deep within inside you where the Spirit of God dwells. Rejoicing doesn't mean you don't share any tears. And it doesn't mean you don't share tears together. I sat by the side of a precious woman yesterday. Went down and sat beside her. And I grabbed her. And she just sobbed on my shoulders. Because her husband is with the Lord. But she's rejoicing this morning that her husband's with Christ, but it doesn't mean that she doesn't have tears. But she's rejoicing. And listen, I've cried with some of you all. I've cried over some of you all. I've even cried because of some of you all. But we rejoice together. And that's what it means to be a church. That's what it means to be in the body of Christ is that we joy together. We rejoice together. We cry together. We sacrifice together. And that's what Paul is saying in 17 and 18. We're, we're rejoicing in the same thing. We're the same sacrifice, and we rejoice together. Listen, a leader, a spiritual leader, doesn't say, doesn't, doesn't fly, throw his hands in the air and say, oh no, what are we going to do? A spiritual leader brings in the troops and cries with them rejoices with them, leads them. And most importantly, stays with them during the sacrifice. This whole epistle is of, of, of Philippians is about joy, isn't it? Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you all make a request with what? Joy. In chapter 1, verse 18, what then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, I there and do what? 
rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Chapter 4 and verse 1, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my what? Joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Chapter 4, verse 10, But I, what? Rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care for me hath both flourished. He rejoiced in his love for them. He rejoiced in their love for him. He rejoiced every time he thought of them. He rejoiced in their sacrifice, and they rejoiced together. And church, this morning, I tell you the truth, as I sit down there on that pew every, every weekday of this uh, uh, that I face, as I sit there on that pew and I pray for you all, I pray for you all with joy. I pray for every one of you by name, and I think, and I have joy when I think of you, except James. But I have joy when I think of you. Because listen, folks, we've been together a long time. We serve together. We sacrifice together. We rejoice together. We share our joy together. And again, church, understand it's not related to circumstances. Because positive circumstances are an earthly joy. Because, but when circumstances are still negative, if, we're, if our focus is on Christ, we can still have joy. So many believers have never known the exhilaration of a spiritual joy that's born out of sacrifice. But here Paul says we serve together. We suffer together. We are sacrificed on the same altar. And we rejoice together. We rejoice to a greater level. Because we have given at a greater level. Listen, if you don't have, let me tell you something. If you don't have joy in church, it's because you've never given anything to your church. Okay? If you don't have joy in church, it's because you've never given anything to your church. You've never sacrificed for your church. And not for this building, not for me, but you've never really sacrificed for the Lord. Paul's amazing. Which is why we call Paul the sacrificial rejoicer. He shows us that the greater the sacrifice is the greater the joy. But again, for most believers, that is so foreign. A missionary living in the jungle without any, without any conveniences, they can still rejoice. How? Because of the ultimate sacrifice, right? The ultimate sacrifice. They, and because of the ultimate sacrifice, they have found the ultimate joy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 4, Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our what? Paul, you're weird. No, Paul has his focused on Christ. That's why he can say we joy in all of our tribulation. Paul's a perfect illustration, folks, of not grumbling and not complaining. Didn't matter what situation Paul was in. He continued to rejoice. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind in the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for my body's sake, which is for his body's sake, which is the church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you for, that, for all the joy wherewith we joy, wherewith we joy for your sake before God. You know, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Or if you've had, ever had the opportunity to read some of the early church fathers, one of the amazing things you'll read is the sacrifice that they made for Christ. 
Irenaeus, for example, was 88 years old when he was called before the Roman church to give his, to either deny Jesus Christ by faith alone or to give his life. And what was Irenaeus' statement to them? He says, 80 and 8 years of Jesus has he done me no harm. How can I deny my Savior who, who bought me now? And with that, they marched Irenaeus off to the stake in the Roman Colosseum to be burned at the stake while he sang praises to God. Other saints of the past, you can read in all these works that they were taken into the Roman Colosseum and they were, they were put, wild animal skins were put on them and wild dogs was, was let, were let loose on them and they were teared piece by piece many times for the crime of possessing the word of God in their own language. But these folks gladly gave their life for Christ. When Martin Luther was called before the Diet of Williams he, in Germany, he was, he was told, as he stood before the Roman, the Roman pontiff and the Roman councils, he was told, listen, you, uh, you either deny the faith that, that salvation is by grace in Jesus Christ alone or face the consequences. Martin Luther had been writing for years that justification was by faith alone. Romans chapter 1 verse 17, right? Justification is by faith alone. And Martin Luther stood before this council and they said, are these your writings, Martin Luther? And he said, yeah. He said, do you recant the writings that are in these books? Answer us and answer us right now. And this German monk stood before the Roman Catholic Church, the pontiffs of the Roman Catholic Church, and said, unless you can convince me by scripture and plain reason and not by popes and councils, which have often contradicted each other, he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. But today, we can't get people to come to church if they got a sniffle. I think we've regressed a little bit, haven't we, folks? I think we've gone back in our sacrifice for Christ and it's little wonder why we have a joyless church because the church knows nothing about paying the ultimate sacrifice. What, what happened to the early church? The more they were persecuted, what happened? The more they grew. Because the false Christians weren't going to stay around for that. Only those that really possessed faith in Christ were going to stay around for the persecution. And the church just grew and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy. Martin Luther, before he left for Vorms, he looked at Kothstead, Dr. Kothstead, and he said this. He says, my life means nothing to me. My life means nothing to me. When John Calvin was standing in his pulpit there in Geneva, he had to fight a people, a group of people called the Libertarians, and the Libertarians was a group of people, they were, called, they were antinomian, they were against the law, is literally what that word meant. James spoke about that last Sunday night. And they lived perverted lives. But they wanted the opportunity to be able to partake of the Lord's Supper. And John Calvin said, we'll have no, no, no part of it. One day, John Calvin was preaching on a sunny night, and they were having the Lord's Supper after the service of the night. And if you've ever seen pictures of, of Calvin's church, he has a winding, spiraling staircase up to the, uh, up to the, up to the podium. And as he saw the libertarians come in the back of the church with, his, with their swords drawn, the estimation was about 20 to 25 of them came through the back door with their swords drawn, were going to participate in the Lord's Supper by force if need be. The historian tells us that Calvin came down from his spiral staircase and he stood between the libertarians and the elements and he said, you may ravage my body with your swords, but you being profane will never partake of that which is holy. We don't know anything about that, do we? 
Because sometimes we partake of the Lord's Supper with sin in our own life, much less keep somebody else from doing it because of sin in theirs. The ultimate sacrifice, folks, produces the ultimate joy. And Paul wasn't so joyous just because he had some weird idea. or He, he wasn't joyous because he had some uh, more of the Holy Spirit than other people have. No, Paul was joyous because he gave ultimately of himself. And listen, church, if you want true joy, maybe you need to start giving of yourself. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. I wonder how many Christians really are consumed with joy of Christ. I'm not talking about happiness. I'm not talking about because circumstances are going your way. You are truly consumed with Christ. I wonder how many of us could really say that. How much of the time do we spend that our quote-unquote joy is because of ourselves? We know nothing about the exhilaration of joy that comes from making the ultimate sacrifice for the cause of Christ. That's what we learn from Paul, making the ultimate sacrifice for the cause of Christ. Folks, let me ask you this morning, what amount of treasure, what amount of treasure are you willing to give up to have Christ? What have... What are you willing to say no to in order to say yes to the will of God? What are you willing to say no to in your life? Those things that make you comfortable. What are you willing to say no to in order to say yes to God's kingdom? What are you willing to say no to in order to say yes to God's church? Folks, that's the real question. I have said it a thousand times. And I will continue to say it. And the reason we have such a discontent, unhappy society, even among believers, is because we're trying our dead level best to find joy in possessions and relationships and not trying to find joy in Christ. You honor Christ, and I will promise you, he will honor you. Rather than in sacrifice, we find it in other things. Rather than in sacrifice, where the ultimate joy lies. Folks, listen, so many Christians, we live our lives chasing an illusion. You say, well, pastor, I don't mind. My life's not that bad. Well, it may not be. God is gracious, isn't he? And he may give you and I a little glimpse of happiness. But trust me, church, you will never know true joy. You will never know surpassing joy. You will never know sacrificial joy. The joy that allows a man or a woman to be burned at the stake and sing praises to God as an expression of joy for them, their lips. You will never know that kind of joy until you've given the ultimate sacrifice in order to gain it. Looking unto Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Who for the what? Joy. Was the cross of Calvary joyous? For Jesus it was because of why? The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate joy. What's the ultimate joy? You and I as his, as his children. I have a great fear that because I believe that the, that the doctrine of sanctification is missing in a lot of churches, in a lot of pulpits. 
And I have a great fear that the, that the sacrifice of our lives are missing in the lives of people. Let me ask you a question, church, this morning as we close. Where is your service? Where are you in your sacrifice? Where are you in your joy? The greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. How do you reach that level? Let me assure you, folks, that, you're, that you and I as believers are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit that the Apostle Paul was. The only question is whether or not you continue to cultivate that union which will yield to you the greatest joy because of the greatest sacrifice. Where was Paul's joy? Paul's joy was in sacrifice. Is that where you find your joy? You find your joy in Christ? Situations change, don't they? People change. But as Logan and all of them so beautifully sang, Jesus never changes. And he is the one we need to sacrifice to. And he is the one from where we need to get our joy. So how is Paul an example of sanctification? His humility, his humble, sacrificial rejoicing. How can you and I exemplify our godliness in our life? By being a sacrificial rejoicing. Giving the most. Christ will give you the maximum joy. You don't give in order to receive the joy. You give out of your love for Christ and He gives you the joy. We don't make deals with God. We give sacrificially. He gives us the joy. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.